Psalm 103, a Psalm of David. Let all that I am praise the Lord. With my whole heart, I will praise his holy name. Let all that I am praise the Lord. May I never forget the good things he does for me. He forgives all my sins and heals all my diseases. He redeems me from death and crowns me with love and tender mercies. He fills my life with good things. My youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord gives righteousness and justice to all who are treated unfairly. He revealed his character to Moses and his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to angry, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. He will not constantly accuse us nor remain angry forever. He does not punish us for all our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For his unfailing love toward those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. For he knows how weak we are. He remembers we are only dust. Our days on earth are like grass, like wildflowers, we bloom and die. The wind blows and we are gone, as though we had never been here. But the love of the Lord remains forever with those who fear him. His salvation extends to the children's children of those who are faithful to his covenant, of those who obey his commandments. The Lord has made the heavens his throne. From there he rules over everything. Praise the Lord, you angels, you mighty ones who carry out his plans, listening for each of his commands. Yes, praise the Lord, you armies of angels who serve him and do his will. Praise the Lord, everything he has created, everything in all his kingdom. Let all that I am praise the Lord. Psalm 139. O Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. You go before me and follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night, but even in darkness I cannot hide from you. To you the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are the same to you. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion as I woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, oh God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you are still with me. Oh God, if only you would destroy the wicked, get out of my life, you murderers. They blaspheme you. Your enemies misuse your name. Oh Lord, shouldn't I hate those who hate you? Shouldn't I despise those who oppose you? Yes, I hate them with total hatred, for your enemies are my enemies. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Mark 3, 16 through 17. After his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending 
like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Mark 1, 9-11 One day Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and John baptized him in the Jordan River. As Jesus came up out of the water, he saw the heavens splitting apart and the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, You are my dearly loved son and you bring me great joy. Luke 3, 21 through 22. One day when the crowds were being baptized, Jesus himself was baptized. As he was praying, the heavens opened, and the Holy Spirit in bodily form descended on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, You are my dearly loved son, and you bring me great joy. Would you grant us the the grace to know ourselves more today in your presence? Help us, Holy Spirit, to become more acquainted with who you are and who we are. We need your help. your leadership. There are things that are on our hearts that haven't been spoken yet. We don't want to close those things off. We just want to be able to give them to you. So take from us and hold for us whatever we come with. make us a bit too tight. Give us the ability to loosen up in your presence, to trust that you can be trusted, to believe that what we have been hearing and reading and talking about over these weeks is true, that that ourselves, our whole selves, Maybe there's somebody here who needs to be healed today. You can do that. Maybe somebody is here today 
and they don't want to be here at all. You can be where they want to be. Convince her that you've got that thing that has her. That you're working for her good. We ask for these things. You know I need your help. You know we need your forgiveness. We need your grace. Grant these things for us. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. I want to thank um, uh, a few folks from my small group for reading to us the word of God. Amber, welcome back. Was your car okay? All right. I'm right. I'm just, I'm concerned about you. What? I mean, I thought it was going to be my car because I got here before the cones. It would have been really bad if I had to leave. It's better you than me, right? Uh, I only do that to people I can do that to if you're a visitor, okay? Uh, And she's going to get me back. So pray for her and pray for me. Uh, Pastor Peter is away. Pastor Peter and Dr. Jenny are away. He told me that they're celebrating her birthday. So next time you see Jenny, if you know Jenny, because she'll be chilling in the cut, you won't know who she is. But, but if you know Jenny next week, just kind of go off and just all, give her all kind of happy birthdays, make her real good and uncomfortable, you know, hug her, you know, all of that. Send her Facebook messages, call a job. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, don't call her job because I will be out of a job. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but uh, hopefully they are having a wonderful time doing whatever she wants uh, to do uh, this weekend and today. I'm glad to be with you and uh, I want to, to talk from, uh, hopefully and eventually and all kinds of things, from uh, Peter Scazzaro's book. We're going to be talking, what I'd like to say is about Three things, um, the, the false self, the true self, and routes between the two. Um, about seven years ago, when I uh, started spiritual direction, which is a ministry of being listened to by another person in the presence of God. When I started in direction, my spiritual director, Lucy, said something that made an immediate impression. She has continued to do these types of things, say these types of things over the years. She said to me, this might have been our first meeting, it might have been our second. She said, Michael, the goal is to feel more and not less. 
we were talking about at least two things. One was sort of the challenges of ministry and being a, a pastor and being a, a teacher and so forth and the challenges to me at that time. And in our church, we go through cycles of every three or four years of change and sort of upset, sort of, okay, recalibration, and realignment. And this was one of those times. Uh, so on the one hand, the part of me that was a pastor and an educator, these sorts of things were sort of coming up and uh, some stuff here. And then the other part, I remember very clearly uh, talking to her about in that early uh, time, in those early meetings, was uh, me and Dawn going through really the dark, hard challenges of trying to have a baby, trying to conceive who came to be Bryce. You know, the Lord answers all your prayers. You know, I pray for you. I have to, I have to tell him that, you know. Um, I ask God for this. Yes, I pray for you. Um, I pray for you. I wanted you, and I pray for you. And, and I, I, remember, I remember talking to Lucy about kind of those two big legs um, that I was standing on. Sometimes it got really weak. The, 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 the part of me that was a pastor, the part of me that was a husband who wanted to be a father. And I remember her saying very, very simply and almost too simply, um, because we were talking about how I felt about those things and my issues with my feelings, she said, Michael, the goal is to feel more and not less. She was not just orienting me to the neighborhood of spiritual direction. She was not just offering me a glimpse into her ministry to me. She was offering me a window into God's invitation for me. The goal is to feel more and not To know yourself more, maybe through those feelings, and not become a stranger to yourself. To to become more of who you are as opposed to running away and becoming some other false notion. One of the people who I met in a book after hearing Lucy say that was a guy named John Shea. And I met him because somebody quoted him and then I had to go find one of his books to meet him. And he says, John Shea, something worth our hearing as I set things up to talk about the false self. He said uh, that our feelings are the word of God to us. Some of you may have heard me say that before because I've quoted him in a sermon before. Our feelings are the word of God to us. Now, some of us, some of us get really uncomfortable with that because we think of Jesus as the word, right? We think of Jesus who is the word. It's cut and dry. Jesus, the word, feelings don't really have a place. At least not when talking about the word of God to us because Jesus is the word of God to us. And some of us, same folks, uh, who will emphasize presenting Jesus to others don't emphasize presenting the self. Sometimes evangelicals are tempted to this 
in a focus on presenting Jesus only, just stay with me because I know you'll want to stop, but stay with me. In our focus on presenting Jesus, we eventually disable each other from presenting ourselves. And where that disabling happens, we lose our ability to be known. And where we are not known, we are not loved. And where we are not loved, we are not reached by Jesus, who is love. In our efforts to present Jesus alone, as if we can do that, We present just Jesus, not the self, ourselves, not something about ourselves, who it is presenting Jesus. In our efforts to say, this is Jesus, without presenting this is me, this is my part, this is my stuff. In our efforts to present Jesus alone, without presenting ourselves, we eventually disable ourselves from presenting ourselves. From knowing ourselves, from being known as ourselves, from being loved as ourselves. And we don't get Jesus. Some of y'all. Some of y'all haven't been saved yet because you haven't presented you yet. You haven't been saved. I'm trying to step back. It looks like I'm spitting. I'm sorry. How can you be saved if you split yourself up as if you don't matter? We talk of Jesus and not of feeling and not of our stuff as if Jesus is coming in person to us. I'm reminded of my director's wisdom. The goal is to feel more and not less. Let's get to this notion of the language of the false self. Y'all still with me? Have I, how many of you have lost? At least you haven't gotten up yet. <laughs> when writers like Peter Scazzaro and others who I'll talk about, talk about the false self, they usually do so in relation to the true self. And the false self has to do with the person who isn't oriented toward God. The person who is, who is not aware of God, who is not orienting herself or himself 
around God. It's another way of saying emotionally and spiritually unhealthy. It's another way of saying spiritually immature. It's another way of saying, you know, whatever, things like that. The false self is another way of talking about having a self as if we can have a self that is not in relation to the God who made ourselves. The false self is not our truest self. It is not who God intends us to be. The false self is who we've become because of a host of influences and what Scazzaro calls temptations which take us away from God and how God views us. So again, false self, don't get too wrapped up in that. You can also say false self. You can say spiritually immature. You can say you know, spiritually distant. You can talk about it in all those ways. I'm going to use the language of the false self We trade our true self, which is how God views us, with a false self, with how we view us or how other people view us, and we become far away from our true self. We become more and more busted and broken at our core self because we operate from this notion of disease, this notion of spiritual disease, this notion of being something other than what God uh, has made us to be. We lose touch with God. We aren't true. In a sense, we just aren't ourselves. Sometimes when I think about this, I think, uh, and this is about me. I think this about me, and I think this is about you too. I say, well, when are we going to meet each other? When, when are we going to get to know who we are? Because you don't know me yet, right? I mean, you know my fault. So, I don't know who you are. I'm listening to 13 minutes, and you're just talking all about your false self. Here's a quote from Robert Mulholland, one of the people I'll uh, suggest and give you some titles later on to to sort of enrich your reading of this book that we're going through together. He's talking about the false self. The placing of ourself in radical separation from God, others, creation, which is the essence of the false self, becomes a pervasive reality that poisons our life with God, with ourselves with others, and in the world. Now, you know, false self is kind of questionable. It's certainly not in the Bible. So, you know, if you like the Bible, you have, a, you have to have other language because false self is sort of extra biblical material, which, which, is, which is why, you know, scriptural concepts um, need to be mentioned for some of us as we think through this. Um, Mulholland here is using a word that I think we all know and we all get. He talks about poison. Most of us know what it's like to be sick. If you're a well person and your head starts hurting and your head just never really started hurting, you start taking notice, something's wrong with me. If you're a well person and all of a sudden you start sneezing and you know, losing your focus and you're tired and 
usually you have energy around this time of day, you start waking up to the fact that you're not as well as you were. You know what it's like to sort of not feel like yourself, to to be ill, to be sick. And he's talking about the false self as a self that is a poison, that that is filled with toxin. I hope you're thinking about the you who is not healthy right now. The, the you who is, uh, I lost one. Lord, help me. She leave. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Teresa's coming back. Um, I hope. The you who is poisoned. Now, you're in a room full of people who, are getting better, who are getting sick, who are getting worse, who are getting better, who are being healed, who are being uh, met with God's remedy for them. So let's just pretend that the language of false self is language that we can all wear like a jacket today, a jacket that fits. Here's some characteristics of the false self. Now, Scazzaro in the book has three. He calls them temptations toward the false self. So if you're reading the book, his Three temptations are performance, possessions, and popularity. So those are, those are pretty clear. Performance, doing these things, accomplishing things, having to get stuff done so that we can perform. Possession stuff, getting stuff, owning stuff, if you can own stuff, having stuff when you can't have a self. And popularity, being known by people as if people could really know you. You just are known by people even though you're not really known because it's not really you. Albert Haas, I'm going to give you a couple of books later. Albert Haas is one of the books I'll give you, and he has a list of what he calls the empty peas of the false self. And this is his list of empty peas. He has some of the same language that Scazzaro has. <clears throat> I think Haas's book is older than Scazzaro's. I didn't check for this morning, but I think uh, Scazzaro is pulling from a well of resources like Albert Haas. So look here, just these, these peas, the empty peas. These are characteristics. These are inclinations of the false self. It's how I know I am less of myself. When I am more of these things, when I am more into pleasure or praise of others or power or prestige and having that position, uh, having, uh, having people know who I am, when I am more in the direction of these, these empty peas, I am less in the direction of getting to know my true self, and getting the God who wants to be in relationship with me, who wants to love me and not the stuff I have or the stuff I do or the record of my performance. The, the empty peas are empty. These uh, people and popularity, position, power, they come up empty because they do not bring us to our real and true selves. So, so, so think this morning, false self, about these empty peas of false self. They are just indicators of unhealth, indicators of spiritual dis-ease, indicators of, 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 of emotional toxin. The more I'm worried about whether you know my name, I'm popular with you. The less I'm in touch 
with my popularity in the Trinity. You are so popular where it counts. And yet you and us grasp after somebody else's better label. And the more concerned we are, motivated by these kinds of things, the less we are leaning in the direction of our true selves. So let's think now about a biblical example of the true self. Jesus. Jeff read uh, the three synoptic accounts of Jesus' baptism. Have you heard the word synoptic before? Raise your hand if you have. Come on, participate. I want to make sure you're awake. Okay. (laughs) Synoptic is a word that means um, something that is seen similarly. So the synoptic gospels are similar in content, but they they are meant to be seen next to each other. These Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke are meant to be read together. They are meant to be heard together. They're synoptic Gospels. They, they have their views and their slants on the biography of Jesus, but they are not meant to be read and understood and consumed alone. They are meant to be held and prayed and interpreted and lived together. So hold in mind how the storytellers of Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, tell this part of the story. There is uniformity as they talk about Jesus' baptism with one primary addition in Luke when he says that Jesus was praying. In the gospel passages, we don't find a busy Jesus. We don't find a Jesus who is actively engaged, but rather a Jesus who is going toward what's next. Before he accepts a prophetic mantle, before he embraces the saving nature of his life, before he enlists ambassadors to be his students and his future. Before he does anything, we have this passage about who he is. Before his roles, we have his essence. This is my son. What do we do? What do we do with this? What do we see here in this? How can we pull from Jesus so that we can get to routes about our own movement from the false self being stuck in what we do and who knows us? I mean, you know, how do we do? How do we do that? Jesus, Jesus does a few things here. A couple things here. Jesus is responsive to conviction. Okay? Uh, and these things uh, are, are going to be up in front of you on the slide. Jesus is responsive to conviction. He moves toward the interior voice of God. 
He pursues the ritual of baptism by John because he must. He is convicted to be baptized. He doesn't leave an option in the tone of his voice with his cousin, this desert prophet. He tells him that he has to baptize him. John, get it done. John, baptize me. Similar to what he said with Peter later on. Jesus was trying to wash Peter's feet and Peter was insistent and Jesus was more insistent in saying, this has got to be this way. Jesus was exercised by some kind of conviction. There is something in his tone that anticipates an identity shaping proclamation. Perhaps he doesn't know when or even that his father will speak. Maybe Jesus knows just enough to respond to the prompting of water in front of him. Maybe he doesn't see the whole picture. Some of you may think uh, 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 and know that Jesus, a Jesus who uh, from, from, from walking out on the sand in the desert knows how everything will look and how everything will, will, will be. I tend to spend most of my time with a Jesus who knows just enough to make me believe he's human. Just like me who doesn't see the whole thing, who doesn't understand the whole thing, and yet, who is Jesus divine enough to perfectly respond to inner conviction? That's the Jesus. I, I know a Jesus who is human enough to say, I know I need to be baptized. I need to be baptized. And who is divine enough to say, I know I need to be baptized. Number two, Jesus is humble. Kirsten, you have this on the slide? The five, yeah, you can just put them up. Yeah, Jesus is humble. When they're in front of me, they make me keep going. So otherwise I'll get stuck. <laughs> Jesus is humble. What I mean by humility is that Jesus appropriately works with the words of others about himself. He appropriately works with the words of others about himself. In Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, Peter Scazzaro uses the word differentiation. Some of you like that word, differentiation. It's a word that you know. When he talks about differentiation in the book, he says that differentiation involves the ability to hold on to who you are and who you are not. The ability to hold on to who you are and who you are not. Here is Jesus who is perfectly humble. He's got John in his ear saying, hey, the Lamb of God. And God, the Father in his ear saying, Jesus knows how to work with both. He he knows he knows how to respond to John by saying, "You think too much of me if you think you can't baptize me." Come on, church. 
He can hold that estimation while at the same time not fighting with the truth that comes out of himself, about himself, and external to himself, about himself, when his father says, you're beloved. That biblical humility, balancing well, true identity is not thinking poorly about the self and not thinking the self to be more than the self is. If you don't, if you're looking for the gospel in this message, can you be humble enough to see your brokenness on one hand and your blessedness Or we can toss the word good news of God. Uh, we can toss the word gospel around. Let's just talk about it this morning like this. Can, can, can you deal with the fact that you are ugly with your ugly self and you look so good at the same time? I better pull back and just sort of say, I better say, you know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like my wife. Who knows I'm ugly. (laughs) And treats me like I'm wonderful. Now she ain't Jesus. Don't get it twisted. (laughs) I just had to find a way to bring you back to this. Can you be humble? Can you do... Now, I haven't even gotten to the thing I want to ask you because here's here's the the wondrous thing of the message is I'm not even talking about you. I'm talking about Jesus here. I'm going to talk about you later, but here is our... and, And I know a lot of people don't like to talk about Jesus as our example, as our exemplar, because we get sort of twisted in what that means for the atonement and how we're saved and reconciled to God. But here's the thing. We can't throw it out that Jesus is our example. We don't have humility. We don't have a picture of it. We don't have an image of this quality of God without him. Number three, Jesus is stubborn. He's stubborn. He's stubborn. Notice that John consented to Jesus. Jesus was decided and then John was decided. John has said, I can't do this. I'm sorry. I I know who you are, cousin. I know the truth about you. I'm not doing this. So John is stubborn. Now, if you don't know, who needs a definition of stubborn? Stubborn stubborn in the Greek looks like you. You are stubborn. You are stubborn. I am stubborn. Ask me about stubbornness and I'll tell. Stubbornness is I'm not moving on this point. And, and we have two stubborn people in this text, John and Jesus. And Jesus insisted on being baptized. This is where I like to read in between the lines of the text because we get the sense that Jesus shows up, John says, I'm not doing it. Jesus said, do it. And John says, okay. You know, good and well, no good argument happens like that. That's not even a real fight. This is a fight with John who believes you are untouchable by me. How can I baptize you? 
you've got to baptize me. Jesus was insistent. I, I thought this week as I was preparing this about our last baptismal service. How many of you were at our last baptismal service when we were at the SDA? Uh, this is where you raise your hand again. This is where, yeah, let me know where you're, okay, you're still awake. Okay. Um, Kimmy and Michael, Michael Barnett were baptized. And um, I thought about, I thought about you, Michael. I thought about you as being so much like Jesus because, and some of you don't know this because it was sort of inter- inter-office kind of communication. We publicize, you want to be baptized, let us know. Michael, first person to respond. We changed the date because we had to put the baptism off. Michael was the first person to say, hey, well, wait, when is this going to happen? I want to be baptized. Um, And Michael and Kimmy gave their testimony, letting us hear and see how God is working in their lives. And Michael came up to me as I was preparing as our image of thinking about Jesus who is relentless in his desire to be baptized who is coming before a John if you will and saying this has to be Jesus is stubborn two more things about Jesus Jesus is identified by his father What does the father say? This is my son. In some ways, when I think about this, I think it is a word for others. I think it is a word for us who eavesdrop on this text, who remember Jesus' experience. I think this is for the church to hear uh, uh, what God thinks about us. This is our word. This is something that God gives for us. But, But I think this is as much an echo for Jesus Sometimes we forget who our father is. And and I wonder if that was true about Jesus. I wonder, I don't know, but I wonder if Jesus was subject to forgetting. Now, that I don't know. What I do know about Jesus is that what happens after the baptism, in at least one account, is Jesus rushes into a context where everything that God ever told him about himself is tested. You will know that as the temptation where the Spirit of God pushed Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the enemy. And Jesus is tempted and tested on the very things that God said about him. Jesus here in the Gospels is told, and the three accounts uh, form a kind of circle of benedictions for Jesus as he goes on to be tempted, as he goes on to heal, as he goes on to preach, as he goes on to live, as he goes on to die and rise. Before all that, the Father says, you're my son. Uh, You are mine. And this is both God's invitation and God's truth to us. Last thing about Jesus is that he starts his ministry as the beloved. He goes uh, into the wilderness in Matthew and into ministry in the other gospels, having heard his father tell him who he is. Now, now consider for a minute 
what you know about the Bible and how people are called by God into ministry. People like Abraham and Sarah, people like Jeremiah, Esther, Moses, Paul, none of those people ran toward what it was God wanted them to be and do. All of those people were were probably a lot better examples early on about being the false self because they were wrapped up in, I'm the queen. I, I don't know how I can do this. I mean, I finally got this spot. I'm a, I'm a Jew, but I'm a queen. And how do I do this? Uh, Paul, I mean, Paul used to kill Christians, so you, you wouldn't think he wants to preach to people. And, um, and Moses grew up in a palace. He was the brother of the Pharaoh's son. He was trained to be at least third in line, if you will, as long as he kept his racial and ethnic identity quiet, so be a false self. And then he gets thrown out to work for decades in the desert. But Jesus, when he's called into ministry, if you will, and certainly his ministry does not just start when we get the notes. I mean, we have to think about these things that, our life was kind of ministry, but in terms of what we mark as ministry, when he started at the baptism, he, he didn't fight. I mean, it's not like Jesus couldn't be stubborn. Jesus could get his point across. If he can convince John to baptize him, he can at least say, you know, I don't really want to do this. But he starts his ministry, he starts his life without critiquing his call. He, he knows himself. He likely knows that his future fits him like the identity that his father is speaking about here. Even if he doesn't see the whole thing, does he see this, that he is the father's son, that he is the beloved, that he is the blessed one? Henry Nouwen has a book called Life of the Beloved, and he talks about blessed, being blessed. And this is a pretty uh, long I'll read it. It is remarkable. Think about God and think about you, okay? It is remarkable how easy it is to bless others, to speak good things to and about them, to call forth their beauty and truth when you yourself are in touch with your own blessedness. The blessed one always blesses. And people want to be blessed. This is so apparent wherever you go. No one is brought to life through curses, gossip, accusations, or blaming. There is so much of that taking place around us all the time. And it calls forth only darkness, destruction, and death. As the blessed ones, we can walk through this world and offer blessings. It doesn't require much That's it. What does this mean for us? A few things. What time y'all want to get out of church? All right, all right. Well, I'm, I'm going to finish. I just want to know what time you hope. Uh, what time does the tow man come? Uh, okay. Just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. You better stay for coffee and donuts. What does this mean for us? Now, now look, when I, when I give you things here, I want you to think about them um, not so much as, oh, that was a sermon point, or, oh, that was an application of the message, or, but as, as a kind of route 
between the false self and the true self, okay? As a, as a route, as a way to get there. And uh, some of these, um, you will find that, oh, I can do that and that. Some of these you'll find, oh, that one is mine. I, I should save that. That's what I need, you know. So take it for what um, it seems to be worth. The first, the first application, the first route here is to listen to God's voice. Now, Jesus heard God's voice in immediate, unmistakable ways. It was the only voice Jesus knew inherently. Now, that's a thick comment. Because what I mean is, you know how you talk to yourself? And sometimes you're on the bus stop and there are people standing next to you and it gets really confusing. (laughs) It's okay to talk to yourself. Usually you want to do it when you're not around other people because if they're sane, they will think you're talking to them. And then they'll look at you and they'll say, huh? And you'll say, what? Oh, did I say that out loud? And then they know, yeah, she's nuts. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I I don't use words like nuts and crazy unless I'm trying to. But, but it's just like your voice, your bus stop voice, right? It's like, mm, you know, I got to do, I got to do, I got to do. When, when, when you're doing that, Jesus does that, and the voice he hears is the voice that he hears saying, hey, hey, loved one. So in an unmistakable and immediate and inherent way, God's voice was the voice of Jesus. For us, we don't have to walk very far to get how God continues to say things to us because we start with passages like this. We start in the word of God. You and I are children of God and and the way God's voice comes to us, and there are many ways that God's voice comes to us, uh, is uh, through the text of scripture and through some of these other things that I will, will comment on. But, but listening to God's voice at least means shutting your mouth. You know how sometimes we get real deep and say, I want to learn, I want to listen to God's voice. I want to be in God's, I want to listen to God's voice. I want to hear what God has to say. And we just keep going and going with what we want, which is great. You should want those things. But the way you listen, that's how, that's how I know, I know, I know how when people say, I want to listen to God's voice, and they go down the list of things that they want. I know that they're not good listeners in their other relationships. And I know, that's why your friends can't stand you, because you talk too doggone much. I'm kind of joking. To get to this kind of, <clears throat> to get to this part, to get to this part that the, the relationship between you and God, if listening to God is involved, means God talking and you not talking. You know one of the old words that people use when they talk about that? is silence. And if I were to ask you, how much time in the last 24 hours have you spent not listening to God's voice, but if I said, how much time have you spent in silence? 
you, start, you would start. You would be like, right now. How can you choose God so that God's voice becomes your most cherished and most immediate sound? Number two. This means for us being around people who remind us of our belovedness. These are usually people who don't need us. These are usually people who are themselves settled at home with themselves and with God. These are usually people who are slower than us, better paced than us. These are usually people you want to be with but can't stand to be with. These are usually people who serve as a kind of compass in your These are usually people who serve as a way of our calibrating how near or how distant we are from home. They don't inspire us to compare ourselves to them just to be ourselves. I hope that as I say these things, somebody's come to mind. Because those are the notes you need to be taking. Oh, when he said that, I thought about him. I thought about her. I thought, and then you notice, I haven't talked to her in three years. And you wonder why you're so far from home. I'm in small group, and yet I, I, I feel a sense of homelessness. I've been serving in the same ministry. I'm one of the most faithful people I've led, and I stopped leading, and I led again. I stepped up when they asked for people to step up, and yet that sense of spiritual foundness, that sense of my true self isn't quite there if what he's talking about is the true self. Why are you around people who don't just remind you of the need that the church has and your capability to serve and meet that need, but are you around people who remind you before you get into all that, before you start healing and teaching and going to the Sermon on the Mount and picking out disciples and this, that, and the other, before you do that, you belong that you belong that you knew you belong that before you do all that wonderful stuff before you become a miracle worker you're his child 
Number three, Super Bowl Sunday. Attend. <laughs> to your whole, that's what y'all really worried about. Y'all, like, <laughs> y'all thinking, I'm, they're not going to tell everybody. I can get past the toll, but does he know what time the game starts? Okay, number three. I, I have no idea what time the game starts. My wife looked at me and said, you don't even know who's playing, do you? And I told her, I said, yeah, because I watched the news. Number three, attend to holy longings. Some desires are sacred. Some aren't. But some desires are sacred. I go back to what Lucy said to me uh, in my spiritual direction, uh, that the goal is not to feel less, it's to feel more. Becoming emotionally healthy is about satisfying our holy desires and putting to death all others. Okay, yes, sir. Becoming emotionally healthy is about satisfying our holy desires and putting to death all others. Now, if you were sitting in my office, we could talk a whole lot about how your sexual promiscuity is a sacred desire. So don't come to me asking me to pray that that God put that desire to death. Sometimes I tell my wife what the old preacher would say is, okay, I'm going to pray for that, but don't come to me when you get a husband and you start saying, can you pray that this desire come back? There's There's some holy longing. Right? There's some sacred desires. And the question for the, for, the, for the engaged Christian who's following Jesus, what do I do with this holy desire? How do I attend to this holy longing? And attendance to our holy longings means following God into the unknown. Attendance to our holy longings means potentially jumping into a relationship with God that upends A holy longing, a holy longing where holiness is not just sanitized, but it's chaotic and it's messy and it's unknown and it requires faith. Look at these uh, reflection questions. How do you attend the holy longings? Here's one example. Here's some questions that you can ask every day, that you can ask yourself about yourself in every day to attend to holy longings. Number one, at the end of a day, at the end of a day when you come home from work, what did I see? This is in one of my workspaces. What did I see? Number two, where was I blind to my feelings? If feelings are the word of God for us, if feelings are attendance to the words of God in us, where was I blind to my feelings? Number three, where did I risk something new? Where did I get at the edge and risk something new? Number four, where was I hurt? We only get hurt by things that matter to us. We only get hurt when we have an expectation or a desire for something that goes unmet, that goes unfulfilled. And yet we hardly know where we were hurt because we just compile hurts. We never chronicle our hurts. We're never able really to talk about our hurts. And when somebody asks us, did you get hurt? We get stumped and we say, oh no. And we haven't even thought about it. And then we have to sit and we have to ask, where was I hurt? That's where the fun really starts. Where did I neglect myself? Where did I allow myself to receive love? What have I taken in that I need to let go of? These 
These are ways to attend to holy longings. Where did I receive? Love is a way to attend to a chaotic and holy desire. Number four. Number four. Remember your interiority. Nate, you still with me? All right, because I, I need what I told you I need. Remember your interiority. Your feelings are a part of your interior life. I think I've, I've sort of said this. They're important. But our interior life is more than our feelings. It includes our responses to ourselves. It includes the internal dialogue, which eventually comes out to people who matter. In Jesus' life, his internal dialogue is here on display. And the voice that comes from within, that Trinitarian communication, is the Father's answer to Jesus' interiority. Jesus notices himself. One of the things I'm learning, and I know it, but I'm still learning it, is that, is that if, if I don't notice my insides, I can't protect and preserve them. If, if I don't preserve them, they'll come out and usually sideways. Imagine if Jesus' ministry came out as an unresolved issue. Jesus preaching out of the false self. What? (laughs) Wait, Jesus? (laughs) You got some issues you need to deal with. (laughs) It doesn't even sound right, right? Jesus. Jesus throwing bricks at people. Jesus got to preaching and he picked up a brick and he hit That don't even sound right. So why would you do it? Why are you going to do it tonight when you go to work? Tomorrow when you get to your office, you're going to pick up a brick and hit somebody with it because you forgot who you were. All right, leave them alone, Michael. All right, number five, number six, and then when I say number six, Carlton's going to come up to the keys, all right, because that means... I'm winding up. Number five, enlist trusted companions. Uh, I, as I've said, I have a spiritual director. You should know uh, that. Uh, You should know that I have a trusted colleague uh, in David Swanson, and I do anything he says. You think I'm exaggerating. First of all, I believe exaggeration is a lie. And if I'm a lie, I'm not going to say it in the microphone. I'm not lying. I do anything David says. The good is that David doesn't tell me to do a lot of things because he knows that if he tells me something, I follow through. I participate in a small group with some of the folks who stood up this morning. And I'm supervised by one of my pastors who you met, Pastor Caitlin and Pastor Peter. I'm in a couple of clergy groups that I lead or participate in. These people, in some way, watch over more than what I do. They monitor the stuff of my interior life. 
And they probably wouldn't say that. Some of them would. Some of them maybe just find that out now. A few of them just trust that I get what I need. They trust me. But I count on them as a part of the picture of my trusted companions. Who are yours? Can you pick up a bulletin and write your list? Can you point to a couple folks in church, at work, in your family, who know you before you accomplish anything, who know you when you fail at accomplishing anything, who don't look for you to accomplish anything? Can you name persons who would speak at your baptism? Some of my companions come through texts, come through books. And as I was preparing for today, there are a couple people that came back up and who was talking to me throughout the week. And they are people I want to introduce you to. Uh, They're authors. They're writers. And I think they, they, they really pair well with what this book is opening us up to as a church. There are four or five people. I want you to have this list of people. My list is alphabetized. I won't name them all. Just put them up here. One is Howard Thurman. Howard Thurman is is like uh, life-giving and like a fire hose. Um, He has a lot of books that I've read, and one of the books that I put up here is called Deep is the Hunger. Go ahead and put that list up. Um, Kirsten, please. Joyce Rupp is another writer. Henry Nowen, I've mentioned. Robert Mulholland. Uh, These are five books uh, beyond emotionally healthy spirituality. These are people you can enlist while you're looking for people who will sit by you. These are people who you can pick up and read as you think about the false self and the true self as your small group becomes kind of that safe place for you to actually be real, if I can put it that way, right? So you don't have to feel like I'm alone because these folks will come alongside you and say, I'm right there with you. Finally, pray for courage. The Psalms that we heard can become our prayers. Psalm 103, Psalm 139. They can become the words we rehearse in each other's ears as we, by God's grace, become our true selves, as we become friends and not strangers to our feelings, to ourselves, to what God is doing in ourselves. The Psalms can give us language when we have nothing to say in prayer, when we're lost about who God has made us to be. when we're so far into the false self that we want to come back to do this whole true self, I really want to be who God has made me to be, but I'm steeped in performance. I wouldn't know where to begin. Your prayer for courage might be a slow reading at the end of the week of Psalm 103. It might be your way of opening up the Spirit of God to change and transform you. The book gives us a prayer at the end. I just adapted it for corporate saying and and rehearsal. So let's, let's pray this prayer. Can you see that? Let's pray this together. And I'm, I'm going to ask you uh, to, uh, 
talk to, uh, can, can somebody touch you? Can somebody hold your hand while you pray? Is that okay with you? If it's not, I'm going to ask you to do it anyway. No, if, if you don't want anybody to touch you, just tell the person next to you, don't you touch me. Uh, but I don't care what he said. No, but if, if it's okay, somebody to touch your shoulder or your hand. Where's, where's Katie Valentine? Okay, she got up and left. I was going to tell you something. You never know what I'm going to say when I preach. It's like, uh, she left. She saw this coming. Okay. Let's pray this together. And I'm just going to ask you, I'm going to ask you to stop at every period and take a deep breath keep going to the next sentence, okay? Sometimes we rush through words. Let's pray. Lord, help us to be still before you. Lead us to a greater vision of who you are. And in so doing, may we see ourselves Jesus' name.